This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is preaching from the book of 1 Peter, and today we're in chapter 2. Last week we started investigating the things that changed when we accepted Christ as our Savior, at least the ones Peter chose to highlight in his letter to the churches in Asia Minor. For example, we now share in the nature of Christ. That's truly an incredible thought given how sin has corrupted our human nature. And our new nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a life lived with hope in spite of our circumstances. Today, we'll hear more about our new nature and identity as Christians, particularly the night and day difference between belief and unbelief. One brings blessing, and the other brings doom, as we'll hear in today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's continue to talk about growth grounded in God, because like Peter's original readers, we are reborn people whose faith God nurtures through His Word. So 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8, we read the following, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." So last week we learned to rejoice at God's placement of each of us in His construction project called a spiritual house. And we learned about the nature of Christ and the nature of Christians. Now we're going to learn to rest on God's promises. So we talked about God's project. Now we're going to talk about God's promises. And learning to rest on His promises is a good sign of spiritual maturity. When you learn to rest on God's promises no matter what your heart tells you, no matter what your mind tells you. Because the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So let's talk about these promises here in verses 6 through 8. What Peter does here in the remainder of this section, he paraphrases three references from the Old Testament to solidify his point that sinners can only be made right with God through Jesus. So again, he's given us information and then he says, well, I'm not giving you that information because this is my opinion. The Bible says so. Now, the first readers then of this epistle here needed the assurance of their salvation because persecution from the Romans likely caused them to have second thoughts about their faith in Christ. They were facing persecution so severely that some of them may have thought, okay, I'm not sure this is right. Are we believing in the right things here? And Peter is confirming that to them. Yes, you're not following a philosophy from men. You're not following a theory. You're following the very truth of God. So to comfort believers facing adversity, Peter then feeds them the only food that produces hope and joy, the pure milk of God's Word. So let me imitate Peter here and give you two full plates of that food. Two full plates of God's promises to you. And that we'll spend the remainder of our time talking about those two. The first one is this, belief brings blessings, verses 6 through 7. Very clearly, belief brings blessings. That is what Peter wants his readers to understand. And he does this by paraphrasing Isaiah 26, verse 16. And I say paraphrase because this is not a word-for-word quotation. This is not a verbatim quotation. 
Isaiah 26, verse 16 is direct speech from God. And it says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Okay? So the prophecy in Isaiah from the mouth of God himself, which Peter is quoting right here, refers to Zion. And that reference to Zion is a figure of speech called metonymy. When we use a geographical location, a smaller geographical location to refer to a greater geographical location. For example, when we say, well, Washington decided this and that. We are referring to the government of the United States. All right, Or when we say, Wall Street had a, a, a loss today, or something like that. We're referring to the stock market. Now, this prophecy here is referring to Zion, using Zion to refer to Jerusalem, because this prophecy predicts the establishment of a new covenant to replace the old one symbolized by Mount Sinai through Moses. So uh, the prophecy of Isaiah is saying, listen, there's going to be a Messiah to come, and he will give his life in Jerusalem. And he's using Zion for that. Christ then ratified the new covenant in the holy city by his death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore, the author assures his readers that their faith comes from God himself rather than human ideas. This is very important for us to know because we share the same faith. Our faith does not come from theory. Our faith does not come from any human idea. God himself says, I am laying in Zion a stone. In other words, God is the very subject of that sentence. He is doing the action. He says, I am establishing your faith. So when you suffer for your faith, when you suffer adversity because of your faith, don't panic because this is a God-made faith. Peter also paraphrases Psalm 118, verse 22 in the same portion here, which reads this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, we, we know the image of being a living stone, which you will remember. We talked about this last week, that a living stone is an oxymoron. It's a paradox because stones are not living. But there's nothing more dead than a stone. <laughs> okay, a stone does nothing. But the figure of speech that Peter is using here is because Jesus is alive and God is using that living stone for a purpose and he clarifies that purpose here as the cornerstone. So not only is Jesus the living stone because he lives forever, but he's saying here that living stone is also the cornerstone, which means it's the reference of the entire building. As the architect of this spiritual house that Peter mentioned in verse 5. Remember, keep in mind the analogy here. There's a spiritual house that is being built, and we are being built up in that spiritual house, Peter says, and you're being built on top of this cornerstone, which is the very reference of the entire building. If you remove the cornerstone, then the building crumbles. Now, people try to do that very thing today. There's a lot of quote-unquote Christians who want to promote a Christless Christianity. There is nothing more stupid than that. When you try to promote a Christless Christianity for whatever reason, maybe you are embarrassed about Jesus Christ, or perhaps you are afraid of publicly identifying with Him and His values because we know that there's a social cost associated with identifying with Jesus. And for that reason, many people try to remove Christ from Christianity. Many pastors want to reform the church by inserting themselves in the place where the cornerstone should be. And these are the guys who claim to be visionaries. This is the vision that God has given me for this place. We do not care about your vision. 
We want to know what God wants for this place. If you ever hear this from me, church, run for the doors. If you ever hear me say, church, this is my goal here that I came up with for this place. Feel free to tell me, pastor, we do not care about that. We want to know what Jesus wants for his church. Can you lead us in that direction, please? Sooner or later, these churches will experience a major collapse. When you remove the cornerstone and you try to do a Christless Christianity, you become a fishing club. You become a social gathering, not more than that. The load-bearing walls of other belief systems will also eventually crumble because their cornerstone is not the one God chose and the one God used to establish His project. Every spiritual leader, every other religion apart from biblical Christianity has a founder who is dead. Biblical Christianity is the only faith, the only system that follows a God who is alive. The God-man who conquered death. It must be terrifying and hopeless to suffer persecution for a religion invented by people. Consider that for a moment. Which, by the way, that describes every other system other than biblical Christianity. This is not a new idea. Jesus says, there is no other way to God except through me. So I'm just parroting what Jesus said. So don't shoot the messenger. People who are described here figuratively as building blocks, placed in God's construction of a spiritual house, place their trust in Christ. And because of that fact, they will not suffer ultimate shame, ultimate disgrace, or ultimate confusion. By the way, that is what Peter means when he uses the word disappointing. You will not be disappointed. Now, he doesn't mean that you will never in your life face disappointment because that would be a lie. All of us experience disappointment and frustration in life. When you become a Christian, that doesn't change. You will continue to experience disappointment from time to time. Are you married? You will face disappointment. Believe me, if you haven't already. Are you a part of a, of a group, of a growth group? People will disappoint you all the time. So this is, this is not what Peter is talking about here. He is referring to the ultimate shame and ultimate disgrace and confusion that people who don't know Jesus Christ, who have rejected Him, will face. So we suffer tribulations here temporarily while we live in a fallen world. But the fact that we know that there's a purpose for our adversity, that knowledge fills our hearts with hope and joy. And therefore, we will never be disappointed in a sense that we will never lose our north. We always know where we're going. So when we face temporary suffering, whether it's a physical suffering, emotional suffering, whatever it is, we know that there is a day when all that suffering will be gone. That is why we will never be disappointed. That is not true of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Peter just says it here. They will stumble because they have rejected Christ. Peter also reminds his readers here that when God caused them to be born again, according to verse 3 of chapter 1, God gifted the reborn with the correct appraisal of Jesus Christ, the correct perspective of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of that. Before you became a Christian, perhaps Jesus was no more than a teacher or no more than a religious figure, someone that you heard about but it doesn't change your life, someone who lived 2,000 years ago, so you didn't assign proper value to Jesus before you became a Christian. But when you were reborn... Part of the package of your salvation is a new perspective on Jesus Christ, a new vision of Christ, which is the correct truth. Now he is one of your most treasured possessions. That is the reality of every believer. Jesus Christ is your most treasured possession. Now Peter confirms this in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Church, you love the Christ whom you do not see. And we went over this when we covered this passage. You ask, well, how can I love someone I don't see? Very simple. I have loved my daughter for nine months before I ever saw her. Till she came out of the womb, then I saw her. And then my love for her was even more confirmed. So we love Christ whom you do not see. Why? Because God in our new birth gave to us that ability. Part of the package of our salvation. Now we have this greatest blessing to look at Christ and say, He is my all in all. He is everything I have. I do not care if I lose everything else because I know I cannot lose Him. See, one of the greatest blessings of being born again is to recognize Jesus with that great appraisal. Precious and choice. Someone whom I value the most. And as a result, we are willing to forsake every other earthly possession for the sake of Christ. This is a feature, my friends, of your new life in Christ. I hope, I hope that this is your position about Christ. When you say, you know what? I, I can lose everything in this world, health included. But I know that I can never lose my precious Savior. He will never let me go and I will never lose him. Now, that is spiritual maturity. Now, this truth sounded like music to the ears of the original readers of this epistle here. And remember, New Testament epistles were meant to be read publicly. So when they heard this for the first time, it was like water in the desert of their hearts because some of them had already lost possessions and even health. And others were about to experience gruesome deaths in Roman arenas under the leadership of Nero because of their faith. But again, their most valued possession could never be taken away from them. So when they heard this, they were so relieved. And, and we experience the same comfort here because we know that we love Christ and He's our most treasured possession. No one can ever take that from us. And this is one of the blessings of belief. But let's talk about the other aspect of God's promises presented in this passage here. And that is called disbelief dispenses damnation. While on the one hand, belief brings blessing. On the other hand, disbelief dispenses damnation. Verse 8. Peter paraphrases Isaiah 8 here, verse 14, which reads this. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, God had already predicted that many people would reject Christ. And many people would stumble over him instead of recognizing him for, for who he is, for the value that God the Father assigns to him. And by the way, the Father was very clear when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. By referring to this passage here, then, Peter explains the perspective of those who reject Christ and the tragic consequence of that rebellion. And again, let me remind you, church, rejecting Christ is not an act of simply opting out of Christianity. It's not just saying, hey, listen, I'm going to opt for a different system here. No, it's rebellion of the heart. Willful unbelief about Jesus doesn't eliminate judgment. You understand that? When people say, hey, listen, I'm glad Christianity works for you. It doesn't work for me. I have a different truth. That changes nothing about reality. Just like you may choose to not believe in gravity, but you jump off a building, gravity will apply to you you will have a very solid encounter with the truth when you hit the ground. 
That is true of spiritual realities as well. People may say, listen, I, I'm opting out. I, I'm opting for my truth because I want to pursue my own path here. That is rebellion of the heart. You're not just making another decision based on, oh, there are several equally valid options. Just like a buffet, I'm going to choose my own here. No, you're choosing death over life, which is tragic. In fact, Peter says, Christ presents a scandal to them, which is another word for offense here. Now, he does not mean to say that people who reject Christ are scandalized in the same way you and I are scandalized by certain events of the world. For example, I am deeply troubled in the last few weeks to see the anti-Semitism in Ivy League schools that we've, we've seen here for the last couple of weeks. I am deeply scandalized by that. I'm thinking this is stupidity that has no precedent. To pay a hundred grand a year to learn that kind of garbage is, is, is beyond stupid. But the point is, I am scandalized by that. This is not what Peter says here. What Peter means is that people who reject Christ, their wrong appraisal of Jesus will seal their eternal doom, their eternal condemnation. And they will literally fall on Jesus because they have rejected him. Which means, church, no one can ignore the claims of the gospel. No one can ignore the claims of the gospel. Neutrality is not an option. Either you receive Christ as a Lord, Lord and Savior, or if you reject him, he will be your judge. God laid the precious cornerstone for the whole world to see and decide. Anyone who doesn't assign the same divine value to him namely that he is the precious Savior, will stumble badly and eternally. God has not given humanity a third option. Postponing a decision for Christ is already a decision. And it's the wrong decision because it's already rejecting Christ. Tragically, every time a sinner refuses to come to faith in Christ, that person takes another step toward eternal condemnation, eternal doom, to use a word that Peter is using here. So church, let me be very clear here. The message of the gospel is not give Jesus a chance. It's the other way around, okay? Jesus was perfectly fine in eternity past in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit before you were even conceived. He will be totally fine without you. The point is not that when we're giving the gospel to people, listen, Jesus is desperately lost without you. That is the wrong message. The right message is you are the one who's lost. And you need to crawl to the feet of Jesus and beg for His forgiveness, and you will not be disappointed. Why? Because you will never turn anyone away. He never has and never will turn anyone who comes to Him away. But I need to conclude here with the clarification about the second part of verse 8, in case you were thinking here that Peter is inferring that God has chosen some people to go to hell. If you don't read the verse carefully here, this is the conclusion you're going to get. Well, he has chosen, he's predetermined to send people to hell. And you may draw this conclusion uh, when you attempt to harmonize verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 with verse 8 of chapter 2 here. But, but listen, basic principle of, of Bible understanding here, Bible interpretation, truth is truth whether you understand it or not. Truth remains truth, whether or not we know all the pieces of it, we don't know how that truth harmonizes with our understanding. Truth remains truth. So when you read chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. You know, he's, Peter's writing to people who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. If you come to an understanding that God predetermined people to go to hell, 
you will come to a wrong understanding of salvation. And the reason for that is because eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels, according to Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 41. Sadly, some people will join Satan and demons in the lake of fire. And we know when and how this is going to happen. Uh, the book of Revelation reveals that to us in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, in the great white throne judgment of Christ, when he, Christ himself, will judge every unbeliever. Every unbeliever who ever lived will be resurrected, will be brought back to life to stand trial and be sent to the lake of fire along with Satan and his angels or, or demons. But the same Bible that describes that event also describes in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, for example, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So unbelievers are appointed to disobedience, Peter says here, because they have rejected Christ. And because they have rejected Christ, then there is no hope for them unless they repent in their lifetime. Their disobedience will result in eternal doom, again, unless they recognize Jesus as the living stone, precious in the sight of God. So when God saves sinners, God is demonstrating grace. When God judges sinners, He is demonstrating justice. No one will ever be treated unfairly. And these reversals of destiny happen all the time. You were someone who was headed toward condemnation, but God chose you and saved you. And when He saved you, then your eternal destiny changed. You received grace. So church, every citizen of heaven will be there because of Christ's work. There's no question about that. There's no one who will be in heaven and will say, I am here because I have accomplished this and that. No, no, that, that's not going to happen. Every citizen of heaven will be there because of Christ's work. At the same time, every person who ends up in the lake of fire will be there because of their willful, deliberate, and ultimate rejection of that work. Does that make sense? If you don't know how these two truths harmonize together, that is totally fine. The fact that I do not understand, I may not understand 100% a particular doctrine of the Bible is just a confirmation of my limited mind. I have a finite brain, and so do you. When you get to glory, you will have a sinless brain. Not an infinite brain. That belongs to God alone. But you will have a sinless brain. You will be able to understand truth a lot better than we do now because now we have sin in our existence. I'm okay with not knowing everything there is to know. Are you? I know that's frustrating sometimes. But the point is we take Scripture at face value. And if something doesn't harmonize in my mind, it changes nothing. Truth is still truth. So because of that, because God has appointed the destiny of those who decline the offer of salvation, I appeal to the conscience of every unbeliever here. If there's any unbeliever in this room or anyone listening to us at home, please reconsider your rebellion. When you refuse to receive Christ, you're not opting for whatever philosophy you chose. You're deciding death over life. That is very concerning. You want to make sure you make the right choice today. Things can change today if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you recognize His Lordship over your life and you say, Lord, I repent. I believe in you. I am ready to be a part of your family while you're still alive. After that, the only option is for you to go to a place called Hades only to be resurrected to stand trial and be sent to a place called Lake of Fire. That is a very tragic destiny. You don't want to go there. And that is the reason, church, why we must insist with our family members and our friends. Listen, I'm not signing you up for the church. I'm not inviting you to be a part of my club. 
I want you to be saved. I want you to be spared eternal condemnation. Please reconsider your unbelief. It's not a lack of knowledge, but it's a lack of willingness to come under the authority of Christ. But my fellow believer, God's promises to you are indescribable blessings. In fact, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, he outlines every one of the Beatitudes, meaning this is your position in Christ. You are blessed because of this, this, and that. And here, what we learn today is that we have joy in this life in spite of suffering and eternal glory in the life to come. He also promises here, the Word of God does, God does, that he has delivered you from this terrible doom of disbelief. You know, stumbling on Jesus now and being judged by him at the great white throne judgment. So, my fellow reborn person, you are beyond fortunate. More than you can count. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and the clarity of your word. Thank you that we are nurtured and fed by your word here, Lord. But Father, we ask that you give us that renewed sense of urgency in communicating the gospel to people because we love you and we only love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.